Well, hi friends, good to see you all. I'd also like to introduce my wife of 34 years, Donna. She's right here. She's an incredible source of God's grace to me. She's brilliant and funny and beautiful, and I love her dearly. One time we were driving on what's called the loneliest road in America. I think it's Route 14 or 40, goes through the desert. And we saw a guy in one of those recumbent bikes in the middle of this road, the loneliest road in America, it was about 114 degrees, and he had all this water strapped on one of those recumbent bikes, and you're thinking, what in the world is he doing out here? He must have lost his mind. And we drove by, a couple minutes went by, and I said, Don, if you ever die, that would be me. <laughs> Completely just, what's he doing out in the desert? That's how I would feel, but God would pick up the pieces, and I'd be all right. My son Isaac's here, too. <laughs> Isaac, Isaac's working in Pondy Kitchen, and he is loving it. My son is working grounds. They're both full-time this summer, being working men. It's beautiful. Hume is giving them incredible leadership development. That's one of the things a lot of people don't realize happens at Hume. We, we think of the, the frontline ministry, which is fantastic, but the kind of leadership development that goes on here... With, with young people, especially coming and working for the first time in their lives and, and making mistakes without costing their parents the money of the broken things that they end up, right? That's the <laughs> but uh, it's just amazing the training they get. But not just the training, but the discipleship, seeing themselves as part of ministry. I especially love it, not just when they're counselors, but when they do things like work in the kitchen or, or work grounds like my son, my other son is this summer because... It's so important to be able to connect picking up trash with the kingdom of God advancing. You know, that you, you may have heard the term the Protestant work ethic. Most people think that's oh, those Puritans were legalistic and they 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 worked themselves to death. No, the Protestant work ethic is summarized by Luther's famous statement that the milkmaid is doing the work of the Lord. It's not just the priests and the nuns. It's it, we don't have milkmaids anymore. They're giant machines and computers that milk cows now, I'm told. And I've actually seen firsthand down in Reedley. But it's amazing how you learn to connect what you're doing in Pondy Kitchen with, with the glory of God being proclaimed and advanced in this world. So I'm so thankful for that. Well, if you were here this morning, we started talking about what the gospel is, and we emphasized that God is the gospel. That's actually the name of a book by John Piper, God is the gospel. Art, you have a lot of... Oh, no, this isn't you. This is the Pondy people. There you go, I think. Um, God is the gospel is the title of John Piper's book. And it's, the title alone is worth buying the book. We tend to rush to the benefits of the good news of Jesus Christ without starting with God himself. God is the gospel. Whatever God accomplishes through the good news brings us to Him. And so it's so important not just to see the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ as the forgiveness of sins or even the righteousness that becomes ours or the eternal life we're able to find, but that we see reconciliation with God, relationship with God as the whole purpose primarily of God's saving work for us. It's really important not to terminate on what our benefit is if it's not ultimately relationship with God that's been restored. And so, so the, the first verse I want to look at as we think this week about knowing, living, and proclaiming the gospel is this in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's so important not to stop with Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice and life for us and not get to the purpose of that. I'm writing a book many of you have heard me refer to. I've been writing it a long time now. It's taking a while. 20 things Christians should probably stop saying. And my father said to me, if you don't finish that book, you should stop saying you're writing it. <laughs> and, and he's right. But um, <laughs> my dad's funny sometimes. Um, just sometimes. And like, one, like any time, did I, have I told you when he's been here before, he, when he shakes my hand, he'll often say, he's a hardworking man, he'll often say, ah, the hands of a scholar. 
And that's not a compliment at all when my father says it. Anyway, um, yeah, the, the purpose of that, why did I get on that? Dan? What was the diversion? You can't remember me either. So that we're brought to God. That's the purpose of this, that we have restored fellowship with God, that we, that we treasure him more than anything else. That's why we started this morning understanding and living and proclaiming the gospel by talking about who Jesus is as the precious cornerstone. This one that is precious to God, although rejected by man, we saw that he's precious in his person as the God-man who perfectly represents us, but also has the power of God to save us. He's precious in his work as he redeems us and restores us and shows us who God is in the flesh. So he reveals God and he redeems us. His redemptive and revelatory work is what makes him precious for us, and so he becomes our treasure. Does anybody have any questions for, that was there this morning? I know I threw a lot of things out that were kind of bombs, like questioning the Enneagram. Does anybody ever not know what the Enneagram was, what I was talking about? It's this, I, I walked around the lake with a worship leader last year from a, from a church, and for an hour and 15 minutes, he passionately talked about this test you take that tells you what number you are, and it opens up all these insights that, that you lack for the rest of your life and gives you an effectiveness you otherwise wouldn't have. Now, I'm not saying there's no value in that sort of thing, but we got around the lake, and I said, you know, you've talked nonstop for an hour and 15 minutes about the Enneagram, and you haven't quoted the Bible once do you realize that? And he thought, I didn't until you said it. And I said, what do you think about it? It seems like you're more passionate about this than almost anything else. And he said, I think you're right. I think I am. And again, it's not to say we shouldn't be passionate about things, but this morning we were trying to say we should so treasure Christ and the pure milk of the word that other potentially helpful things really pale in comparison to Jesus. And you know, I also threw out Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, which I'm sure upset some people. And maybe they didn't understand what I was saying. I was just saying that we religiously discipline ourselves to maintain and deepen that relationship. I think sometimes when we use phrases like that, people think about the Christian life as this purely spiritual, relational thing without any structure, without any discipline. And so we're not even sure how to answer the question, how's your relationship with the Lord? Because we're not sure even what that looks like because it can be so vague and spiritualized by saying it's not about what you do, it's who you are sorts of things. So that's why I said that. All right, any questions about this morning you might be wondering about or what I just said? Okay. Well, let's, let's pick it up. I really just want to look at two verses in 1 Peter following where we left off this morning, where Jesus is the precious cornerstone. Verses um, 9 and 10. Here we go. This is what we become when we see Jesus as the precious cornerstone. You are a chosen race. I'm sorry, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race. We've actually got it up here too. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let me just read one more. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These realities that become true of you if you repent of your sin and trust Jesus in saving faith are the anchor of our identity. This is who we are now. And as I said this morning, we tend to find our identity in so many other things, often that are more weighty for us and actual working out our lives than these truths. It is just amazing how easily we, 
weight so many things. And, and actually, this, this will get me in trouble too. That's okay. I... I think there's a big problem with what's called the homogeneous unit principle. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. But the church growth movement came out with several principles, 7, 9, 13, depending on which church growth expert you listen to. And they said that the homogeneous unit principle is one of the most important ways to grow your church. And what that means is separate and divide and group people by demographic similarities. It's amazing how implanted this has become in the church where we don't even question, we don't even think about it. We think it must be in the New Testament somewhere and the church has done it this way for a long time. But it's really about 70 years old. This idea that you walk through the doors and you send the the little kids over here, the junior hires here, the teenagers here, the um, singles here, the young marrieds here, the young marrieds with children here. We sort of not don't know what to do with the middle-aged kinds of, we'll call it college or career, and we'll have a group for old people. You're not going to find that in the New Testament. I actually think the apostles would look at that and say, what? I think that's what they'd say. What? I, I think they'd be really surprised by this inclination. Here's the problem. That works numerically. We like relationships that are easy to form. And people say, man, it's hard enough to form relationships with people just like I am. You're, you're going to ask me to form a relationship with someone 30 years older than I am or younger than I am? We don't have anything in common. So let us just group in our little groups. You know, we're already fairly divided by socioeconomic status and race and culture in the church. And then we divide it up even more. This idea came out of the church growth movement, and the problem is it works from a numerical standpoint. But the question we need to ask is, one, can we find it in the Bible? If we can't find it in the Bible, it doesn't mean we can't and shouldn't do it. There are other things we do that isn't explicitly in the Bible. It may be wise to do that sort of thing. But first, we need to establish this isn't about, but we were just hiring a new youth pastor at our church, and we had a meeting for the parents, and... And man, they were talking about it like who we hire fitting this description of these parents' priorities is going to make or break the next generation. And I said, you know, could we just pause here and remind ourselves that you can't find youth group in the Bible anywhere? Doesn't mean it's not a fine thing to do, appreciating developmental differences and all those things. You can't find children's ministry in the Bible. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Doesn't mean it's not wise. We do it at our church. But can we back up and say, you know what? We could not do this and still be completely biblically faithful. (laughs) Just make all those kids come to church and yes, put up with it. You cranky adults. Yes. Um, and, and, And just have the family go together, right? Some kids never see their parents put money in the plate. Well, none do because we give online now. But, but, um, or, or worship, or sit under the preaching of the word, or, right? So, so this idea that demographics are that weighty, well, we start to then think about ourselves in light of the demographic category in which we fit, right? Instead of these sorts of realities in the church that define us fundamentally from God's perspective. So if, if you're a... a transformed, born-again believer in Jesus, who've repented and trusted Jesus, this is who you are. You ready? And like I said, before we focus on who we are, we've got to focus on who Jesus is, as we did this morning. But the first thing is a stunning statement, especially in our day. You, if you're a believer in Jesus, are a chosen race. That's what we are. First of all, chosen by God. That's an awesome thing. Initiated by Him, created by Him. We don't have to try to become the church. We have to act like what we are that God has created us to be. That's really freeing for me. I don't have to to become a child of God. We don't have to become a chosen race. God chose us from the foundation of the world to be a people set apart for Him. With all the talk of race these days, which may be very helpful to do, as Christians we need to realize that by faith in Jesus we become a race of people. What does that even mean? It's a distinct classification of people, an ethnicity, a group, a nation a unified people with our own identity and our own culture. 
Now what's fascinating about this is in the glorious display of races that God has created, he actually says there's a race you become part of, whatever your race is in the way we typically think about that, that outweighs your racial identity on a human level. And, and so it's so important for us to find our unifying identity as the people of God in being one chosen race that includes, however you want to define race, there may be three races, there are maybe four, it's even hard to define. And when someone's mixed, what in the world are they? You know, it's actually fascinating. We, one of our sons, we don't know what race Sam is. We're not sure. And that, that's an interesting thing, and it's kind of a sad thing because he has no connection with his birth family, but, but I kind of love it that my boy doesn't even have the option of finding his identity in his race because he doesn't know what it is. And he actually is so cool looking that he could fit in anywhere in the world. Everybody claims him. Mexicans claim him. Uh, Taiwanese claim him, which is where he's from. Um, uh, Cambodians claim him. Everybody swears he's one of them, which I love. He could fit in anywhere in the world except like Iowa maybe. But, but he, he, there's something, isn't that cool? That he doesn't have the option of defining himself by his race. It really puts all the conversation about race in perspective these days, doesn't it? doesn't mean we don't celebrate cultures and the beauty of even physical features that different races have. We can celebrate that. But we recognize that even though there's a glorious array of kinds of flowers in the world, they're flowers. And then when you become one of God's chosen people, this becomes your true identity. That's defined by our relationship in, in, in Jesus and our repentance and faith in him. That means that, that Art Melly, where'd you grow up, Art? What state? Uh, Philadelphia. Philly. You're a Philly guy. All right, so, so how old you are? No, come on. Be proud of being an old guy. Come on. How old are you? 71. All right. So Art's a 70-year-old Caucasian Philly guy. Yes. And spent time on the mission field. He, who's your favorite sports team? Oh, so uh, uh, one of those kickball teams. There you go. So... Um, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so, so, yeah, so Art's a 71-year-old Caucasian man, spent time in the mission field from Philly, California. He likes a German soccer team as his favorite team. And if you found someone with every one of those demographic identities, they would have so much to talk about, right? But Art loves Jesus. Art is a new creature in Christ, which means... That if you brought that guy who's 71, Caucasian from Philly, who loves a German soccer team and spent time on the mission field even, but no, that wouldn't work. Remove that one. But this guy doesn't love Jesus, wouldn't spend time on the mission, but he doesn't love Jesus, right? And you sat him next to Art. And then you brought in a little girl who grew up in a slum in India, who's nine years old and can't speak English. And you sat her next to Art. She and Art are brother and sister. She and Art have a bond that so transcends their different race, their different socioeconomic status, their different gender, their different uh, experiences, their different uh, hobbies and interests. All those things we tend to put so much emphasis on. She and Art share a bond that is so profound and so deep and so transcends all those other demographic realities that we tend to put so much emphasis on that it's as if this other guy who shares all those things is a complete stranger. Walt and that little nine-year-old girl from a slum in India are family. They're, they're the same race in a profoundly fundamental way that trumps all those other things we tend to put so much emphasis on and even divide along the lines of in the church. And so we're a chosen race. What an awesome thing to say. And here's the thing. I think a lot of the reason we have race relations problems 
I think a lot of the reason that we have conflict and, and distrust and all of these racial problems in our society is because we put so much weight on those things in defining ourselves that we can be intimidated by the differences. When you're profoundly confident in who you are in Christ, you're not intimidated by differences. You can enjoy them, often as a God-created reality. There's no threat to you or your culture or your identity when someone else from a different background comes into your life or your neighborhood. That's why Christians should be these embracing people. You know, I was in Santa Fe Springs, uh, which is the next town over from La Mirada on the other side of Valley View, if you know La Mirada. And it's a dividing line socioeconomically in so many ways. And, and I was in, I was in um, Santa Fe Springs, and I was pumping gas because it's cheaper in Santa Fe Springs than it is in La Mirada. And I was pumping gas, and I heard Spanish music pumping out of two of the cars. I couldn't see English anywhere. And I, I was the only white guy I could see, and I thought, this is awesome. If, if somebody just told me, they knocked me out and dropped me in Mexico, I would, I would believe them. And I thought, I love this. And I thought, how horrible if I were threatened by this because I could never stop it. And this is just great. I love this. Now, I'm not trying to wade into immigration. I'm just talking about it, loving the ability to appreciate a different culture and ethnicity and race because I am so profoundly finding who I am in Christ that those things are relatively incidental to who I am and who that other person is. And so we are a chosen race. We don't have to be threatened by difference. And then it says, this is awesome. You're a royal priesthood, which means we have a king and we're royalty, right? We're part of a royal priesthood. This combines both the priestly office of Jesus and the kingly office of Jesus that we get to become part of. There's also the prophetic office, but this is emphasizing those two roles he fulfills and Jesus makes us part of his royal priesthood. He's the great high priest. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And we become his subjects. And we become part of his priesthood as he gives access into the holy of holies for us individually. And then we have the privilege of being able to say to people, I am going to the presence of God because of Jesus' finished work. Why don't you come with me? You know, ushers are a great ministry in church. It's amazing how important they are to the ministry of a church. And, and I love that image of all of our role as priests. Imagine what a Jew uh, thought when, when he was told that there's coming a day when this priestly function that can only be done by male from the, the line of Levi, Jews, who don't have any deformities or obvious evident effects of the cursed world we live on as they offer sacrifices. Their wives have to be ritually pure. They have to be ritually pure. They have to meet all these criteria. 21, as a matter of fact, in the book of Numbers, laid out to be a priest, a very select few, yet in the midst of this selectivity, listen to what it says in Exodus 19.5. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. You hear that? Same words in Peter here. You'll be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Peter's just quoting Exodus 19 here. But imagine what it sounded like to a Jew to say, there's coming a day when all of my people will be priests. All of my people have access into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and they will have the privilege of representing other people fundamentally for us in prayer, but also through proclamation where we bring people into the presence of God. What an incredible privilege. I think linguistically there are a couple of great, I would go as far as saying tragedies in the way Christians learn to talk through the centuries. And one of the tragedies is reserving the word priest for a select few in different traditions in the church. To, to say that, that, oh, he's a priest among Christians is a complete misunderstanding of what we're learning here. 
If you're a believer, you're a priest. It's not just a few guys who wear a collar. It's all of us. The other, I think equally, reducing saint to a select few the church has canonized is a great error in thinking because the Bible says we're all saints. Hagioi is the primary term used for, for Christians in the New Testament. Holy ones, set apart ones, distinct ones. We're all saints and we're all priests. These are fundamental tenets of the Reformation that restored this New Testament understanding. And so, so we're, we're priests, which means we live with the capability to be used by God to bring unsaved people to saving knowledge of Jesus and bring saved people to deeper and deeper maturity in Jesus. What an awesome privilege to be able to be used by God in that way. And I think it's so important for us to not see ministry as a profession that a few people who have, who happen to have a seminary degree and get a paycheck for it. The job of those guys is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and to basically work themselves out of a job. You know, my brother-in-law uh, is going to be online. It's all right. My brother-in-law is the pastor of this big old church, and it's very much a church that's grown up around him. And they have this thing called point man insurance. Or if he dies suddenly or fails morally, they get $10 million to cover them because they know the church will be decimated. That's a problem. But sadly, in many parts of the country, in churches, that's typical. Churches are decimated when the dude leaves for some reason. That's never how it was supposed to be. I know I'm blowing stuff up that some of us are just used to, but I just really want to challenge some of these things and ask, where do we find celebrity pastors in the Bible? You ever seen the Instagram page, Preachers and Sneakers? Yeah, it's, it makes me want to heave, quite frankly. It's just pictures of preachers with these sneakers that are thousands of dollars sometimes. And then this guy started this, and he just puts the picture of the preacher with his sneakers on preaching, and then just the eBay sales page for to show you how much these things cost the guy five grand three grand just two weeks ago one of the big health wealth prosperity guys told the cameraman to get a close-up of his sneakers because they had gold plated buckle a gold buckle solid gold buckles not plated solid gold buckles and he said get a close-up of these i paid a fortune for them <laughs> you know we get really upset rightly about people dressing, men dressing as nuns, going to Dodger games. That's repulsive, and God won't be mocked. But it seems to me Jesus went after those kinds of preachers more than Sister Norma, right? Or whatever, Roma, whatever her name is. You know, it seems we get really exercised sometimes about the pagans and what they're doing and don't pay enough attention to what's going on in-house. The Bible says judgment should begin in the household of faith. And so it's really important that we step up and stop, stop just allowing all sorts of things that you can't find in the Bible and actually may work on a human level of success but aren't really what God intends for us to be, which means grabbing hold of our royal priesthood and, and seeing ourselves all as ministers of the gospel. So that's who we are. Listen to Paul in Galatians 4. My little children, he's writing to the Galatians, beautiful, father in the faith. My little children, for who I am again in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you like a woman in labor, as Paul, Paul says. I so want you to come to maturity in, faith, in Christ. I'm like a woman in labor. Now, I've never been in labor. Maybe you're surprised by that. I've never, in these days, maybe you are. I don't know. But um, uh, I, I've never been in labor, but every woman I've ever talked to said, yeah, you want it over with. Right, you'll hear 42 hours, ah, right? And that's, that's the image Paul uses. He so wants the Galatians to come to maturity in Christ. He says, I've seen women in labor. I know what it's like, and I want it over with, right? You don't want it to last a minute. That's how anxiously and deeply he wants them to come into maturity in Christ. We all should have that. I know many of us have it for our, our own children, 
and are in anguish when they're not maturing in Christ or wayward, but we all should have a sense of a deep longing and prayerful desire for people to come to know Jesus in greater maturity in him. Let me pause there. Anything? Comments? Questions? Those are two weighty things. Let me just say this. To be a priest is not complicated. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. It sounds complicated, but it's not. All it is is being somebody who takes initiative in conversations and in life and says things like, hey, listen to what I learned when I read my Bible this morning. Or, hey, why don't we pray together? You know, I, I wonder sometimes if in the church the lie we tell most is, I'll pray for you. Isn't it amazing? Hey, I'm going to surgery. My mom's going to surgery. I have this big challenge coming up. I need a job. Okay, I'll pray for you. Uh, how often does that end up being a lie? I, so I, I will just say, let me pray for you right now. So I don't put myself out like that. If I'm not confident, I'm actually going to be disciplined to do it. And, and so, so praying for people, initiating in that way, on, on a drive, just say, hey, let's turn the music off and read Galatians and talk about it. Following up, hey, I prayed for that situation with your mom. How's that going? That's what priests do. You, you, a priest will turn a conversation in an unedifying direction to an edifying direction. Maybe even saying, I think we just started gossiping. Why don't we turn the corner here? Or, or just, you're just talking. Have you ever spent three hours with friends and talked about nothing of any meaning? <laughs> I have, and I leave just feeling blah. And so I, I just love the words of Jim, Jim Elliott that he wrote in his journal when he was 19. He said, Father, make of me a crisis man. Don't let me be a fork along, a, uh, don't let me be a milepost along a single road, but let me be a fork whereupon when men meet me, they're confronted with Christ and must choose one way or another. We can't be satisfied with, with just shallow, banal conversation and interactions and relationship. We're priests, people. Let's grab a hold of that priestly privilege. And then we're a holy nation. It's beautiful. Set apart. Holy because that's what our holy king is like, and we've been set apart for him. It's like when Moses sees the burning bush, and God says to him, Moses, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. In other words, when you see God move into our lives, you'd assume his holiness would be tarnished, or we would somehow be annihilated, and like that bush, neither happens. But he causes everything that he moves toward to take on the quality of holiness. That's why we're saints, because the Holy Spirit has taken residence in our hearts. And so we are holy people. We're a holy nation. And it's a good thing, because the Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so he puts us in a set-apart state so we can see him, so we can be brought to God. That's the whole idea. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so we're saints. And what we end up with is a humble holiness. You know the, the, what are you, holier than thou? Well, not holier than thou, but holy. <laughs> Let's not throw out the whole sentence, right? I'm not holier than you as a fellow believer, but, but I'm holy like you as a fellow believer. We should never be afraid of grabbing a hold of our holy identity. We are saints. And we're a holy nation. That's fascinating. What's a nation? A large body of people united by common descent, that's us, Christians, common history, common culture, common language. We have certain ways we talk that are identified by biblical ways of thinking and talking. Now, our nation's not a geopolitical entity. It's a spiritual entity, but it's one that's worked out in every geopolitical entity wherever we may be. And that includes people from every nation, language, tribe, and one day that will be an evident reality to everyone. And we're ambassadors of this king who oversees this nation of which we're a part by faith. We're ambassadors for Christ as if God were making his appeal through us. We represent him. And then we're at God's special possession. We belong to our king. We're not just citizens. We're not just subjects. We're part of his holy nation. We're his children 
we're part of his bride. And then he says we're people who hadn't received mercy, but now we have. My friend, Pastor Bobby Scott, says we are people redeemed from every conceivable slave market of sin there is. Beautiful. You're a child of God. You didn't earn it. It won't change. You didn't make yourself worthy of it. It's not based on your feelings or your daily consistency. But you can say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ and it's, I, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then we live out what we should call gospel-driven sanctification. We pursue increasing holiness in our lives, not to become something we're not, but to work out our faith with fear and trembling. Never work for our faith with fear and trembling, but work out our faith with fear and trembling, realizing that we are God's people. And we do what Paul says in Philippians 3.16. We live up to what we've already obtained. So I would never say to my children, don't lie, don't steal, if you want to be part of this family. I say what? Don't lie, don't steal, because you're part of this family. Huge difference. Huge difference. We never are seeking to earn anything that Jesus has already earned. He's done it all. When he said it's finished, he really meant it. And we can rest in that assurance. So we claim our inheritance. We believe that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And he lies to us. He lies about us. And we need to tell him to go away. I have a friend who was stabbed at a party in college. And he almost died. He was within seconds of dying when he was a college student. He got in a fight with a guy, and the guy pulled out a knife and, and stabbed him. And a punctured a lung, nicked his heart. EMT saved his life. It was a year and a half before he was really starting to get back to who he was. He, he spent almost four months in, the, in and out of the hospital. But four years after that happened, I was able to attend the trial for the attempted murder um, that he experienced. And it was just amazing to me because they put Andre on the stand and, and they tried to make him like he was the aggressor to the point where this guy feared for his life, remembered there was a, a knife in his pocket and he pulled it out and he, he stabbed Andre. Actually, it's a very different story, but they tried to make my friend into a monster <laughs> and say he was a horrible person. Now, what's interesting is, is my friend became a Christian in between this event and sitting on that stand four years later. And so the defense attorney threw everything he could to turn my friend into a monster that this guy was just trying to protect his life from being taken from. And what was interesting about it is for four days, my friend was on the stand, and they actually kept bringing up things that were true about him from his past, things he wasn't proud of, and bringing up things that weren't true. And I will never forget watching him for four days sit there taking this barrage of accusations with no defensiveness, no pride, no difficulty in saying, yes, I did that before I trusted Jesus, and that's not who I am anymore, and that's not what caused this fight. And then they would throw things at him that weren't true, and he said, that's not true. And I thought, that is every one of us who is in Christ being accused by Satan of things that actually are in our past that we could be defeated by and shame-filled from, but we're free now. And he throws things at us that aren't true. And, and so we need to listen to Charles Spurgeon when he says, I know what the devil will say to you. He will say you're a sinner. Tell him you know you are. <laughs> but for all that, you're justified. He'll tell you of the greatness of your sin. Tell him of the greatness of Christ's righteousness. He will tell you of all your mishaps and your backslidings and your offenses and your wanderings. Tell him and tell your own conscience that you know all that, but that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And although your sin be great, Jesus Christ is quite able to put it all away. We don't need to prove anything. 
We don't need to demonstrate anything. We're not worthy of his forgiveness. That defies the definition of grace, to think we're worthy of it. You know, I used to get defensive when I heard somebody, heard somebody say, Christianity is just a crutch for weak people. Do you ever hear somebody say that? I actually remember saying to people, no, it isn't. Some of the strongest and most brilliant people who've ever lived are Christians. It's not a crutch for weak people. It just makes perfect sense. I don't react that way anymore. Now that I've understood the gospel more deeply, when someone says Christianity is just a crutch for weak people, I say, no, it isn't. It's actually more like CPR for dead people. If you think I just need a crutch, you have no idea how bad off I was. And we don't need to fear our depraved, weak, fallen condition. Sometimes we get to that point, we get to the end of ourselves, and then we spend the rest of our Christian lives acting like that wasn't true in the first place and still isn't an ongoing struggle for us. So we can rest in the finished work of Jesus. But look how it all ends. It's just beautiful. This isn't just to get us to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his, of his own possession. Here's why. Look, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When God makes us this people, the goal of it all is not just to get us saved, but to get us proclaim, to proclaim the greatness of the God who saved us. It's got to have an outward proclamation, worshipful expression, or it's horribly incomplete. If you don't adore, if you don't proclaim the greatness of God, your understanding and appreciation for that will be deeply stunted in your life. It's so that we will proclaim his excellencies who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. So we grab a hold of our identity in this context and our foundational apologetic then is what God has done for us in Christ. And we're one people. I'll close with this, John 17. Jesus prays for us. This is awesome. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. He's talking about his disciples. He's been praying for his disciples. And now he turns to the believers that will follow in their footsteps. He prays for us that they may all become one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So our oneness is supposed to be the backdrop of our proclamation. It's our actual frontline apologetic demonstrating the hope we have within us. It's our oneness. I want people to look at the oneness of the people in our church and say, how in the world do you two even know each other? Never mind call each other brother and sister and lay down your lives for each other like that. And I want us to be able to say, oh, we really don't have a lot in common the way you think about it, but we have Jesus which is everything. Jesus says, The glory you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Did you hear that? I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know you sent me and love them even as you loved me. It's amazing the things that divide us, the things that cause us to separate and identify ourselves by lots of other things besides Jesus. It's got to be him. All right, let's talk. It's a great group, great size of a group. It's about the size of my average class at my old. It's fantastic. What do you want to talk about? Comments, questions, thoughts, pushback, confusions? Tell me your name. Tim, you two, are you married to each other, the two of you? Well, you two have to decide between yourselves who's going to go first. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, what do you got? I, I just want a clarification on number three. Uh, holy nation. Yeah. Are you referring to the body of Christ? Not, a, not our nation, but our, the body of Christ. Yes. So uh, like, like we become a distinct people that, that God calls a race. 
We're a distinct race of people, a categorization of people based on all these common lineage that we come from the same, we come, we come from Abraham, we trace our lineage all the way back, right, as God's holy people. It, yeah, so like race, God uses the nation image as well that, again, isn't a geopolitical identity. It's not defined by borders and a, and a common government or a common uh, economy. It's, it's defined by Jesus. So he's using these metaphors from human experience and saying you're now part of something that's more important than your earthly citizenship in the United States or whatever country you're from. This trumps the race that people want to identify you by, but you have a, a dominant race now as one of the people of God that makes that very peripheral. And so we, 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 that means, that illustration I use with, with art, that means we are world Christians. We have a kinship with people in a country halfway around the world that we don't have with fellow Americans. It so transcends, as much as we love and value citizenship in an incredible country like this, we recognize that, that we're part of a people that are coming from every tongue, tribe, and nation that, that so transcends that earthly identification that some Christians are willing to give up their, their American citizenship to go and minister to people in another country so they can stay there. That's more important to them. And they identify with those people. And I'm sure you've experienced this right, with the German people. That, that they're, they're family to you in a way that Christians who don't love Jesus aren't. Yeah? Yes. that help, Tim? Okay, thank you. What, what's Tim's wife's name? Gail. Gail. Hi, Gail. <laughs> Hi. Um, I just wanted to say I really appreciate what you're saying about the Enneagram because I find that sometimes it gives us an excuse <laughs> to not share Christ, or like I'm shy, I'm just whatever number that would come under. And I um, haven't studied much about it, but I did hear that it has its roots in the occult. Have you heard anything yeah, pertaining well, it, to that? I haven't studied it a lot. I've read a few things on it, but I'm just amazed at how quickly it has just gripped a lot of Christians. People say, say it's got yeah. some sort of Christian history. Some people say it's older than the Bible. It, so much depends on what version of that idea the person you're talking to is coming from so I don't sort of want to condemn whatever version people have of it and again I'm not saying things like that or the Myers-Briggs or even gifts assessment surveys you take in the church and those sorts of things can be helpful and please hear me I'm not saying don't take those they're bad now I think it's important to say is this coming from a source that I don't want to trust but well, we need to do that with Freudian thinking too and Marxist thinking too and, and um, John Dewey's thinking. I mean, there have been so many major influences that are, are very unbiblical in their approach that may have truth in them, but so we need to be wise and biblically discerning about whatever idea is gripping people these days. And so I have heard that some and read some versions come from, from occultic backgrounds, but that doesn't mean necessarily every version of it does. A friend of mine, Ken Birding at Biola, and the New Testament prof, wrote a couple of really good blog posts on his view of the Enneagram. And he's just concerned that yeah, Christians talk about that and other things as well. Like, I hear people talk about their gifts assessment survey they took when they were a freshman in college or in their youth group, and it then becomes the defining reality for them. Instead of looking, you know what the biblical pattern is? Not, I'm going to serve out of my strengths, is it? serve out of what your weakness and so ken actually thinks gifts not the miraculous gifts but gifts are primarily not what you're really good at but opportunities to minister god gives you very often out of your weakness it's moses saying take on pharaoh i don't speak well lord my my gifts assessment survey says taking on pharaoh is not in my job description and God says, do you think I don't know how you speak? I made your mouth, Moses, right? And so it seems the pattern in the Bible is not operating out of your talents that flow naturally. And by the way, I, I just want us to step back and think about all these ways we categorize ourselves. And this, this is going to blow people. Did I mention this morning, I don't think extrovert, introvert categories are helpful. Did I mention that this morning? Yeah, do you know introvert, extrovert categories was invented by Carl Jung, a, a, a psychologist 
in 1900, and he said no one is actually either or. He said if anyone was actually either an introvert or an extrovert the way he's, he defined it, you'd be institutionalized. That's what he said. No, no one is either or. But we do that. We grabbed hold of this simplistic idea, and we, we just say, I'm an extrovert. And every time I say to people, they say, what are you? And I say, I don't think that's real. They're like, what? What? And you can tell their whole identity is based on this. And we, we, I've talked to introverts, and they say, asking me to greet someone at church before the offering is cruel punishment. Don't do that to us introverts. How dare you, right? That's like me saying, they think I'm an extrovert, I suppose, saying, don't expect me to listen to you. I'm just going to talk the whole time because I'm an extrovert, right? I'm not going to do that either. I don't think those, and people say to me, well, which are you? And I say, and they say, oh, you're an extrovert. And I say, how do I know? And they say, well, do you get energy from people? And I say, that entirely depends on the people. <laughs> right? Some suck the life out of me, right? And so, so or, or how much sleep I got that day, right? So, I don't know. But I just don't think these categories are, the Bible seems to emphasize the fruit of the Spirit that God works not out of some category I've put myself in, but often in spite of what comes naturally. It seems like sanctification, it seems like ministry, it seems like fruit of the Spirit is often enabling me to do things that aren't easy, that aren't instinctive, that don't feel like what I was made to do. And I've experienced that. So Don and I ran a group home for eight developmentally disabled men when we got married. We got married, went on our honeymoon, moved back into a home with eight middle-aged guys and we took care of them. And it was an amazing experience. Why did I get going on that? What was I just talking about? I was thinking about clipping Mort's toenails. What, what did I? I really was. I really was. And I got distracted. What, how did I start down that road? Come on, hang with me. Who's taking notes? Here. Yes. But why did I start talking about that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. Who was that? What's that? Tell me your name. Anna. Anna. You got me back on track. My wife usually does that, but she, she must have been doing something else. I don't know. Um, yes, Anna, I'm back. I'm, I'm, I know exactly where I was going with that. Well, we ran this group home, and we did things like clip toenails of these guys and like put my John Wilford's prosthetic eye back in when he would lose it during the day. I'm serious. We did stuff, and we'd bathe these guys. We'd help them brush their teeth. I'd floss a couple of the guys every night, and, and we, were, we, we really had an amazing ministry with these guys, and people talked to us like we were Mother Teresa. Like, oh, you guys are so wonderful, and we were able to say, no, it doesn't feel like work. It doesn't feel like work. It's not hard. We love it. It's a joy. And I don't think it's because I'm gifted at working with middle-aged, developmentally disabled men. I think God just gave us this opportunity and said, I'm going to carry you into this and help you be effective in spite of your cranky self. Not me, not Donna. And, and to be really compassionate and gracious and patient and kind in ways you, you don't have naturally. I think we've, we've taken this idea of gifts and Americanized it and made it into what we're good at instead of what God enables you to do out of your weakness. It's a gift to minister and serve. You know, Mike Rowe, you guys know Mike Rowe? Dirty Jobs, he's got this great podcast. But Mike has one of the most listened to podcasts, uh, listened to TED Talks ever, and it's called The Dumbest Advice I Ever Heard. And it was follow your passions. <laughs> and, and he says, here's why that's stupid. He said, you need to follow what the needs are. And ask, well, he didn't say ask God. I'm, I'm now making it Christian. And ask God to give you a passion to meet those needs. And, he, and Mike wrote in this TED Talk, talks about a guy he knows who's a billionaire who's in sanitation and sewer work. And he said he saw this massive need and he dove in to, make it, to meet it with excellence. Now, he happened to become a billionaire from doing it. But do you think he started off saying sewage is my passion? No, it's, the need was obvious. And so he got pumped about meeting this massive need and happened to be wildly wealthy because of it. But when we lead with what gets me going or what I'm fired up about, who says I'm fired up about working in the nursery? I know that's my daughter. She is. She, she loves it. But if need 
isn't driving what we focus on, it's going to become a really self-absorbed thing, and we're going to call it ministry. Instead of expecting God to help us meet needs that we, we don't have any idea how we're going to be able to do it, but look at that, he, he enabled us to do it. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't do that ahead of time and you can hit the ground running in a ministry that feels like what you were created to do. That can happen too, but, but let's not make it my talent rather than an opportunity God enables me to minister to out of weakness. Does that help, Gail? That's a long answer, Gail. I won't charge you extra for that. What else? Any other comments or questions? Yeah. Hi. Can you Hi. expound on a comment you made this morning? And oh. I might, might have misinterpreted it. Um, but you made the comment that salvation has a past, a present, yes. and a future. Yes. And I was confused by that a little bit because it can apply salvation can go away or yes. maybe you have to work at it yes. or it's not fully yes. attained. Yes. Can you, can you help us with that? Yes. So great question. Thank you. And when I preach, I hope you always give me an opportunity to just take something back. <laughs> but thankfully, I don't need to take this one back because when we go to the New Testament, the, the word for salvation is used past, present, and future tense for the believer. In that, we say God saved me. And that's, that's what we tend to think of when we talk about salvation. God saved me. He saved me from, from darkness and brought me into light. Done deal. Jesus finished that. But salvation in, in just New Testament usage is also used that we're being saved from the power of sin. There, there's an ongoing saving that Jesus is doing that starts with that finished salvation but now it has an ongoing implication in sanctification. We're being made holy, and that's all part of this overarching saving work. And we will be saved once and for all when Jesus returns, and the battle's over, too. And so, I mean, the, the, big, the term people will use is the now and not yet of God's redeeming work. And that's the tough part of, I think, being a Christian in so many ways that there's a finished aspect to this that we rest in, that we're trying to pound away at here, but that has ongoing implications for our lives as we work that out. And that's also called part of God's overarching saving work. So salvation is going on even in the life of the believer as we work out the finished identity that we start off with. And then there's a future component of it as well when we're completely once and for all conformed to the image of Christ and the battle's over. And so it, it, C.H. Dodd called it um, the now and not yet like D-Day and V-Day. Like the, the believer lives in between D-Day when we broke Hitler's back and the outcome of the war was sure, but there were still battles to be fought. There were still casualties along the way. And, and we're not to V-Day yet. We're, we're in that in-between time of, of, of the definitive blow in the battle being delivered by Jesus so the outcome is absolutely certain, but we're not done yet. We're still in it. And this is why, for instance, the charismatic issue is, is difficult. And the prosperity guys I was, I was going after before, they live in the now and not enough of the not yet. So they say, if you're sick, you must lack faith because Jesus brought the kingdom. Well, yeah, in a definitive way, but the battle still rages. Sickness still is, sin still happens. I, there's still poor people who love Jesus and are completely faithful. So, so it's that now and not yet idea. But just from a, ling, a linguistic sense, the Bible uses it in a past, present, and future tense. Does that help? I, I really appreciate your help me clear that up because I don't want to give any idea that the finished work of Jesus isn't finished in the believer's life. But we also don't want to think then we hunker down and just wait for the the Titanic to sink and Jesus to come back, right? We need to be working this out in a, in a really evident way. Great question. One more. Finn. Bible man. Um, could you explain more on the connection between Israel being a kingdom of priests and God's plan for them? and how that transfers over to now the Christians? Yeah, so in different traditions, there are different, different ideas of the role that the actual geopolitical nation and the, 
the, the uh, ethnicity of the Jewish people still plays into God's plan. What everybody agrees on, though, is that Gentiles were grafted in. That, that's, that's what he's talking about. At once you weren't a people, you Gentiles, Peter's writing to, but you are now. You've been grafted into the people of God. You now can actually say you're part of Abraham's lineage, even though you're a Gentile. You're a Gentile, right? Right, Finn? Finn, you a Gentile? Finn, yes? Okay, non-Jew. There you go. So, uh, yeah, we've been completely grafted in, and we share in the covenant promises that have been fulfilled in Christ. Now, I, I do believe there's a future for ethnic Israel in God's plan, where there will, there will be a large intake of believers into the church. I don't think the church has replaced Israel, but I think the church has been grafted into Israel, and now... Jews, many are, are do, don't see Jesus as the Messiah, so they're not part of God's kingdom right now, even though they're ethnically part of the chosen people he used in the Old Covenant. And so, so does that help? Is that what you were after? What, what's the kind of? We'd um, like to get more to... More just yes. like, because Peter's using that same like language there in Exodus, and like, how like is it fulfilled partially in the church or like because the whole point of israel was to be a kingdom of priests and they failed at that no i think the way the people of god become a kingdom of priests is the second half of the covenant promise that that i will be your god you will be my people and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you that that worldwide implication of the covenant with abraham is often what, what Jewish people forget about. That this isn't you're the chosen people to be the chosen people. You're the chosen people so that every tongue, tribe, and nation will become part of the people of God. That's what the day of Pentecost was all about when, when the kingdom launched in this universal way. Now, is it more than kind of? Yeah. Okay, beautiful. <laughs> all right, Art, let me pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the amazing grace you have poured out on us. Thank you for the joy of being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people of your own possession, that we may declare your greatness as you brought us out of darkness into light. Thank you for this time together, Lord. I pray we would be grabbing a hold of our priestly privilege and walking it out in confidence that you can and want to use us in amazing ways in the lives of other people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.